Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. Uh, we are continuing in our series called The Biblical Theology of Race this morning. We started last week by surveying the start of our Bible, Genesis 1 to 11, engaging in this shining dream that God has for humanity to be a blessed and a unified family that's displaying his glory over the whole of the earth. Yeah, we confronted this reality, but by the time we came to Genesis chapter 11, God's shining dream was inverted. It had come apart because of man's division, the fracturing of humanity, his commitment to his own glory, led us to this place by the end of Genesis 11 going, what are we going to do in response to the brokenness that has infiltrated this, this family of God that is supposed to be humanity? Now, if, if we were to slowly trace the story, I'm, I'm going to very quickly sketch it for us. We, we would see that in Genesis chapter 12, God's response to the brokenness of humanity, the fracturing of humanity, is kindness to one. He says, I'm going to be friends with Abram. Amazing, the type of friendship that God forges. Friendship to one changes the whole of humanity. He adopts Abram as his friend and he says, I'm going to bless you and your family and through your family, all of the nations will be blessed. You will become the father of many nations. In essence, he's saying through you and through your seed, I'm going to recapture my shining dream for humanity. And what we know to be true is that God forged covenantal relationship with Abraham and the Jewish people that came through him, but continued to confer on these people time and again that there is a day coming when through the seed of Abram, it will become clear that this is not just about my kindness to a single people group, but to all nations. And we have the privileged position in history of being able to look back and know that the seed of Abram was Jesus. And that in Jesus, God is intending to bless all the peoples of the earth. And so this morning, as we continue sketching out a biblical theology of race, we started by laying a foundation last week. And this week, we're going to talk about Jesus on race. What is it that Jesus has to say about race? And just before we, we plunge in there, let me remind you, if you're new to this conversation or just a reminder from last week, that this is intended to be conversational. And so just after this service, right up that, that uh, walkway there, I'll be in the first room on the left in that next building, and we're going to have some Q&A and some ongoing discussion. We'll continue to engage in this in our house churches because we want this to be dialogue. I'm not asking you to agree with everything I have to say about race. What I am asking is for all of us as the people of God to graciously and humbly submit to his word wherever we're able. And this morning, we're going to labor to do that specifically as it relates to what Jesus had to say about race and the content of his ministry. So we heard it. I just wanted us to catch the, con the context of Jesus' ministry and the way that he very strategically and pointedly touched on and taught about race. Did you hear it in chapter 9, verses 51 through 55? The context that Jesus was living in? It said that he sent some people to, to set up ministry in a Samaritan village, and the Samaritan said, we don't want you here. Did you hear that? If you look back, it says when he sent their messages in verse 2, they, and they entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations, but the people did not receive him because he was going to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire to consume them? This gives us just a little taste of the ethnic realities, the racial realities that Jesus lived in, that there was a strong division between the Jewish people and the Samaritans and the Gentiles, and it was it was 
there was animosity that marked those relationships. That they lived in separate parts of town. They didn't worship in the same places. That in fact, Samaritans were not welcomed in the temple. And so they set up their own, uh, their own worship in their own part of, of uh, that area. And so they said, hey, we're going to go up this mountain. You go up that mountain and never the twain shall meet. They had been so mistreated so consistently for so long by the Jewish people that when Jesus and his disciples were coming to town, they said, hey, you know what? We don't want your kind here. That they had been so oppressed and so mistreated for so long that now they had grown bitter and angry in response. And they said, just keep moving. Thanks, but no thanks. And in response, what we find is that some of the disciples who've come with Jesus on the journey have smuggled in their animosity and hatred. And did you hear it? At the drop of a hat, James and John, the sons of thunder, as Jesus called them, were ready to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans. This is the context within which Jesus was doing ministry. Division, fracturing, hatred, animosity, certainly not God's shining dream for humanity. And so it's interesting, is it not, that this is, uh, on my Bible, it's actually the same page, depending on how, how your page numbers work, right? But this is the context into which Jesus' rather famous parable about the good Samaritan emerges on the scene for us. That just after that time, in chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, Jesus begins to teach about how we define and live into our call to be neighbors, to be neighborly. And this is what he's going to do, and I don't want us to miss it. He is going to step right into the racial tension of his day and his time as he defines what it means to be neighborly. And he's going to show us this, that Jesus' people... Jesus' people show compassion and costly care, especially in the midst of racial tension. I believe that what Jesus is doing in his teaching, in this context, animosity between these particular people groups, he's going to say right there in the middle of that animosity, what I want you to know is that Jesus' people show compassion and costly care. That's what they do. So let's see if we can make sense of this together. The, the parable of the Good Samaritan, no doubt one you've heard before, but one that I want to invite us to look at, particularly through the lens of a biblical theology of race. So look back with me at chapter 10, verse 25, and I want us to look at just the, the setup first, 25 to 29. The first thing that I want us to recognize is this whole thing is a setup, right? The beauty of understanding the setup, just, just before we read, Jesus is like a jiu-jitsu master, Anybody know jiu-jitsu? I'm not like a martial arts guy. I like Cobra Kai. That's about as far as it gets for me with martial arts. But, but jiu-jitsu, I've learned, is this, this particular martial arts that's all about getting the other person off balance, and then it uses all of their momentum and their force to dismantle them. It's like very supple but strong because it, it responds and it recoils and allows them to get off balance and then uses that to undo them. The beauty of Jesus, when he confronts the forward momentum of hatred is that his supple and quick movements transform it into love. That he has this powerful, supple ability like a jiu-jitsu master to confront the anger and hatred and animosity of his day and time and to transform it into something, something totally different. And what we realize is that he is a mark in chapter 10. Someone's coming for him. Look at verse 25. It says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test 
Someone who studies the law of God professionally, and he has a purpose. He is putting Jesus to the test. He says, teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? The jiu-jitsu master doesn't immediately answer. He poses a question in response. He's getting them off balance, right? Well, the lawyer answers, and he says, you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And Jesus said, great. You've answered correctly. Do that. You see, Jesus, this guy's trying to pick a fight with Jesus. He's trying to test Jesus. Come on, master, what do you think? And Jesus goes, you tell me. And he goes, okay, you've already got the answer. Just do that. And in verse 29, what we hear is this. It says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? At the outset, I just want you to feel the animosity that is even marking this conversation. Jesus is a mark right now. This guy is looking both to test Jesus and to justify himself. He's not coming honestly to submit to Jesus. I remember the first time I was a mark, my brothers and I were, I was 10 years old and I was walking with my older brothers in the streets of San Francisco to get churros from Jack in the Box. We had a craving and our parents gave us permission to walk down the street in San Francisco. We were staying at this hotel, we were on vacation, and we went for a walk and these con artist guys came up in front of us and they were doing this card game and one guy throws down money and he makes $20 back immediately and we're like, this is so easy. We put our money and then they immediately just grabbed it all and ran away. And we were these kids, you know, that had been living in, uh, on the East Coast that were standing on the streets of San Francisco and all of our churro money was gone and we were like... What just happened? The first time I had ever been a mark, you know, like they were coming for me. The deal is that Jesus is a mark in this passage, but he is a jiu-jitsu master. Nobody ever takes Jesus for a ride. This guy's coming to try to expose him to the crowds, but Jesus poses a question, and the guy leans in, and he goes, well, okay, master, then tell me who is my neighbor, because he's still trying to justify himself. And into this space, Jesus begins to tell a story. And in telling the story, he's going to begin to undermine the religious mindsets of this lawyer and quite possibly and uncomfortably the ways that we smuggle in our own religiosity and, and similar moments. Let's look at the story that he tells in verse 30 to 32. What he says is this, Jesus replied, and trying to answer who is my neighbor, he replies and he says this, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So this road from Jerusalem to Jericho is an incredibly dangerous road. This is the equivalent of Jesus saying, let me tell you a story about something that happened in a dark alley in the worst part of the city. This is the context of the story he's telling. He says, this man was stripped, beaten, and left for half dead. Literally, it's hemithanos. Literally, the, the, it's a, a Greek word that's very unusual. That it's, it's a compound word that literally means half dead. He's barely hanging on. Verse 31, now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So Jesus is is being dealt with. He's the mark of a very religious person who's trying to justify himself as being basically good. And Jesus starts to tell a story, and he incidentally tells the story, and the first two characters that get named are also very religious people. 
a priest, and a Levite. This is the supple and forceful jiu-jitsu movement that begins to dismantle what this lawyer has come with. And what Jesus exposes is this, that if, if what we're going to learn is that Jesus' people show compassionate and costly care, what we see on the front end of his story is this, religious people just want to be right and steer clear. He's saying, let me tell you, lawyer who wants to justify himself, I'm just going to tell you a story. And it's about a priest and a Levite. And when they see someone in the midst of their suffering, they're so concerned about being right, they just steer clear of that suffering, trying to keep their hands clean. There's been lots that's been said about why in this story the Levite and the priest might have steered clear. Lots has been written about it. We're not sure because Jesus doesn't tell us. But we could guess that for both of them, being ceremonially clean is really important for them to be able to do their very godly duties. And so the idea of touching a man that's half dead or might soon be all dead and getting his blood on their hands would leave them no longer ceremonially clean, that they would be unclean. It might be that they were busy and they had somewhere to be. They had important work to do as a priest or a Levite, and they're going, this is not my deal. I didn't cause this pain. I didn't, I didn't wound this person. My hands are clean as it relates to this situation, and I have somewhere important to be. It might just be that they were scared. Keep in mind, they're in a bad alleyway in the worst part of the city, and this guy just got beaten to death. Maybe the people that beat him are still around. i got to keep moving. Regardless of what was motivating the first two characters in Jesus' story, what we know is this. They determined, this is not my fight. This is not my deal. My hands are clean. And what Jesus begins to expose, if we're honest is a bit uncomfortable. Because what he exposes right in the context where there is a need for mercy to be shown, where there is someone that is struggling and suffering and exposed and vulnerable and in pain, what he says is it is a consistent response of the religious that I'm doing the right thing, my hands are clean, and I'm just going to keep moving. This is not my deal. And, and in so doing, I think Jesus begins to slowly implicate the heart of this religious person who just wants to be justified. He just wants to look good. And if we're honest, throughout history, this has been the posture of religious people when confronted consistently with injustice. Like if, if we'll just deal honestly with history, not even necessarily asking us to deal with our own hearts in the moment, just, just surveying history, we say, yeah, yeah, religious people have been good at that. There's the rather haunting story told of a small, faithful Christian church in Germany that was positioned near a railway line that carried railroad cars full of Jewish individuals to concentration camps during the Holocaust. And the haunting story is told in the first person by someone that worshipped in that community, and they said there would be regular occurrences where we would be in gathered worship, and we would hear the train come by. We would hear the moans and the cries of the people that had been packed inside, and they said, and in that moment, you know what we did? We sang louder so we didn't have to hear. Because the deal was, this isn't my deal. What could I possibly do? You know, the heart of the worshiper in that moment is going, I'm here trying to praise God. I didn't put the people in those cars. I didn't mistreat them. That's someone else's sin, someone else's thing. What am I to do? 
So I'm going to sing louder so I don't hear it. And what Jesus is beginning to expose is that's the posture of religion. The posture of religion says, I just want to be right and I want to keep my hands clean and keep moving. Thank you very much. And the struggle is that it's not just a German sin. That when we survey American history, it has historically been an American sin as well. That there are, there are lots of dynamics of race at play globally, culturally, and in our moment. We, but we're all aware that the white-black cultural reality in our nation has been a lightning rod that exposes the way that God's shining dream has been broken historically and still presently. And when you consider even our, our own American history, I, I think we've got to be careful not to engage in this cancel culture, especially looking back where if anyone has some statement or some misstep that we, we absolutely cancel everything beneficial that they brought to the table because we are all a mixed bag, every one of us. But I will say it was painful recently to read the biography of George Washington, someone that I'm inspired by and I think was amazing in a lot of ways. But a man that was confronted consistently with the evils of slavery, and he wrote about it. He even spoke about it publicly. But when it came to his private life, he actually deceived his own household slaves consistently so that they could not experience freedom. And he wrote secret letters and said, these should never be included in my public letters because I don't want people to know what I'm actually doing behind the scenes. And we realized that from the very beginning, the founding of who we are as a people was founded on this reality of, of a public display, but a private reality that we're going to continue to do what benefits us most. And the sadness that the church was complicit in that, and that even some great commentators that are still in print who are writing through the 20th century upheld the idea of slavery with something and, and the oppression of certain people groups because of the curse of Ham which I won't go into, but I'll say it's still in print. There's commentators that get quoted consistently that wrote at length about the curse of Ham, which is just poor, broken exegesis that was saying, in the sons of Noah, there was one line that was intended to be oppressed because of the judgment of God, and that that is why the African peoples consistently end up enslaved or oppressed. Written at, at length by American and, and European theologians up and through the 20th century. And so we recognize historically, at, at minimum, brothers and sisters, what we realize is this. Religious people have been consistently good about saying, I'm going to defend theologically, I'm going to be right, and then I'm just going to steer clear on the other side of the road and say, this is not my thing. And just to make it a little more pointed and personal today, I, I just want one survey from 2020 that I'd at least like us to wrestle with, because this isn't just history. One survey, just to consider for a moment. The Barna survey in 2020 interviewed evangelical Christians, people who have a high view of the scriptures and believe that Jesus is the only means of salvation. And of the white evangelicals that were questioned, 33% said there's a problem with race in America today. Of the African-American Evangelicals who believe that Jesus is the only way in a high view of scriptures, brothers and sisters who deeply hold the same convictions, 81% said there's a serious problem about race in America today. 
that for me, at minimum, whatever else we would say about what is happening in our present moment, as Christians, can we just stop and recognize something has gone terribly awry? If seven out of ten white Christians in America today are going, I don't see an issue. And eight out of ten of our black brothers and sisters are going, please see that there's an issue. Like just for a second, would you stop and consider that there might in fact be an issue? Even at bare minimum being the sort of people that would stop and consider our history and our present moment, that we need to be very careful no matter our background history makeup, to not be the sort of people that say, you know what, I've got some stats and data, I've got some answers, not my deal, didn't cause the problem, I don't have a racist bone in my body, I'm just going to slide by on the other side of the street. The danger of religion is that it makes you just want to be right, keep your hands clean, and keep moving when others are suffering. This is what Jesus is poking at and prodding at right in the middle of the Jewish-Samaritan divide. And I would just say a final note, and we'll move on. A final note about this danger is I think for some of us, a, a response I get pretty consistently is, well, I just want to be colorblind. All this talk about race, I think that's part of the problem. That Shouldn't we just be colorblind and look at all people as the same? Wasn't that Martin Luther King's dream, by the way? that we would just be colorblind. And into that space, I would say, be careful. Let's all be careful there for two reasons. One, God is not colorblind. He values color. And what we are going to get to by the time we get to Revelation 7 is that he desires every nation, tribe, and tongue still maintaining their ethnic identity in heaven, singing at his throne. He values color. He sees it. And I think we ought to try to see like he does. He values differences and ethnicities, and he's redeeming the differences into that single unified whole family. And secondly, if we're not careful, our colorblindness will keep us from dealing with the historic and the lingering effects of racism. We actually need to see the difference between all of us. Now I'm not just talking white and black. I'm talking every difference that we bring to the table needs to be seen and dignified so that we can start to be the unified and blessed family that is God's shining dream for his covenanted people. You see, religious people focus on being right and keeping their hands clean, even if it means they remain cold to the suffering of others. But Jesus then turns the corner in his storytelling, and he presents a third option. And interestingly, this is where he thrusts his storytelling right into the racial tension of the day. He's not sidestepping it, but like a jiu-jitsu master, he's reshaping it into something totally different. Let's read as he brings it around the corner. Pick up in verse 33 with me. This is where he begins to expose that Jesus' people provide compassionate and costly care. And in verse 33, what he says is this, but a Samaritan... And as soon as he said these words, the lawyer stands up straight, everybody in the room, his disciples are a little bit uncomfortable... Because he just took this storytelling about neighborliness into a space that makes everybody present really uncomfortable. So you, you want to talk about being a neighbor? Well, then a Samaritan came by. And he says, and as he journeyed, he came to where he was and he saw him. Which incidentally, that's the exact same formula that he's used so far for the priest and the Levite. He came by and he saw him, but then it changes. What's the next phrase? and had compassion. 
The first difference with a Jesus person over a religious person in this text is that they get proximate to pain. Jesus people don't sidestep pain. They get close to it. He saw it, and then he felt it. And then it says he went over and he started to bind the wounds of the half-dead man. He actually got his blood on his hands. That this man, the hero of Jesus' story, was proximate to pain. He saw it and he felt it. He took it into his bones and then he got close enough. He probably wasn't traveling with bandages. It's not like he was a traveling medic ready to care for things. He probably had to rip his own cloak to, to bandage this man's wounds. That he's getting his blood all over his stuff. Proximate to the pain. It reminds me of a really powerful book I just recently read called Black Like Me by John Howard Griffin. You ever heard of this book? Famous cultural, culture-making book written in 1959 by a white journalist who was so concerned for the plight of black men and women in America yet felt so divided from it that he made a radical decision. He decided to become black. He actually took pills and then did light therapy that caused him to become a black man. And then he went to deep South America and he traveled. And he traveled as a black man in America. And then he wrote about the experience. A stunning display of getting proximate to pain. To not say, like today, seven out of ten white evangelicals could go, I don't see that there's a problem. But to actually say, I don't know if there's a problem, but I'm going to get so close that I feel it. And then when I feel it, maybe I'll be able to articulate it. And this man became such a strong proponent for the plight of black America. He began to write boldly. And he was riding this wave as the laws changed in the mid-60s. And there was a lot of hope that there is a new day dawning in America. But then the most... The most haunting, dare I say devastating portion of his book is that he wrote in an addendum late in the 1970s. Looking back on, I did this thing in 1959, we saw great change happen in the 60s, and now here we are nearly uh, 15, almost 20 years later, and let me tell you, not much has changed. He says, the laws on the books have changed. But the friendships I've forged, the places I've been, the experiences that are endured, not much has changed. A haunting read, a good read, a challenging read. But the recognition being that the first mark of, of a Christian dealing with, particularly with the tension of race and certainly broadly with the realities of human suffering is that a Jesus person gets close to pain. Like, I need to feel it in my bones. Because that's what a Jesus person does. And the second is that we don't just get proximate to pain. We respond like family. Look at verse 34b and 35. He says this. So he went to him and he bound up his wounds and he poured oil on the uh, poured oil on oil and wine and then he set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him and the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying take care of him and whatever more you spend I will repay you when I come back this sort of response we would do quickly if you found out your brother or your sister or your first cousin or your parent were wounded and left on the side of the road you would go I'm coming right now, and I'll write the check, and I'll get you cared for. That's what you would do for family. 
But this is what he does for a stranger. This is the recovery of God's shining dream. Not just compassion, but costly care. Saying, I will actually imposition myself for the one in pain. That when we start to live into the vision of being Jesus' people, we all of a sudden, we respond so differently. We actually treat the stranger like family. We take their pain into our bones and then we say, and I will do whatever I have to do to stand in the midst of this so that you could experience healing and wholeness. John Newton, uh, in writing to a young father that was starting his family and trying to figure out how much do I give to the poor and the hurting and the suffering in my city? What do I do as a Christian? John Newton gave this very difficult, challenging advice to this young man. He said three things. One, establish a standard of living that meets your bare necessities. Two, use whatever entertainment fund that you have to care for the poor. He says, Jesus actually said, when you throw a party, don't bring people that can invite you back. Bring people that will never be able to afford to invite you back. He said, those are the sorts of people that should be in your home, people that are hurting, that have been close to pain. Use your entertainment dollars for them. And then third, he says, and make generosity a higher priority than savings and retirement. Yeesh. John Newton's stepping all over my toes. I don't know about yours. But incidentally, it's not John Newton. It's just Jesus. He's just quoting Jesus. He's just saying, let me tell you what Jesus' people do when they confront human suffering. They get really close to the pain and then they allow it to cost them as they bring healing. And the last note is this. The last note is this. This equally applies to the majority and the minority cultures. And this is a profound move of Jesus. So in this room, whether you're white or black or Hispanic or Asian, no matter our makeup and our background, however we view the tension of race, the spaces where you endure ignorance or you confront coldness or you're wounded by outright bigotry, this word actually speaks to everyone on the spectrum because Jesus beautifully selected a Samaritan as the hero of the story. Now think about what he's doing here. He just got rejected from a Samaritan village because the Samaritans had grown bitter and cold and angry because of the mistreatment they had received from the Jews. But Jesus doesn't respond in like manner. He actually raises up a Samaritan and makes them the hero of compassion and care. What is he doing here? He is bringing dignity to everyone involved. So much so that by verse 36 and verse 37, it says this, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The man started with a really low definition saying, well, who is my neighbor? And he goes, wrong question. Let's talk about what it means to be neighborly. Who proved to be a neighbor? And catch this, the guy won't even say the word Samaritan. I almost imagine him like sheepishly looking down and go, uh, the one who showed mercy? And Jesus said, yeah, go do that. Right? Jesus has just done this beautiful flattening of, of all of the issues at his feet. Did you hear it? Because listen, to the Samaritan, he says, do not settle down into a definition of, or a self-definition of a, as a victim. Jesus does not engender a victim identity. 
So to my brothers and my sisters, that you feel like you have had to confront the ignorance of others. You have at times been dealt with with outright bigotry or coldness. Listen, your identity is not as a victim. Your identity as one who has received the grace of Jesus and can also extend his grace and his love. That the ignorance of the majority culture needs the love and the respect and the brotherhood of those who've been wounded by it to transform it. That's Jesus' jiu-jitsu. And it applies whether you're part of the majority culture or the minority culture. This is, this is actually, we're all in this together. That's God's shining dream for us. That to those who are of the majority culture that think this is not my problem, to those who are religious and saying not mine, Jesus says, it is yours. Slow down long enough to listen and to feel the pain of others. And to those of you who've been wounded and mistreated and feel bitter and angry, do not let that bitterness define you. Victor Frankl in his his book, Search for Meaning, Man's Search for Meaning, he tells the story of getting out of Auschwitz camp after years. And he said the first day that he and his fellow uh, prisoners were set free, he said some of the men that he were with walked through a cornfield that was right down the street, and they knocked down every stalk of corn, thousands of them as they walked. And Frankl went to them and said, what are you doing? And they said, we need to make these people pay. They need to pay for what they've done. And Frankl said, listen, you are going to remain in the chains of this hatred. Though you are free, you will still live in chains if you don't deal with the realities of what you're smuggling out in your own heart. Frankl realized one day free the dangers of bitterness and anger. And so here at the foot of Jesus, everyone is equal and called to the table. And so here's the invitation that we together as the church would begin to reimagine God's shining dream. Mutual respect and love and listening, feeling the pain of another and engaging in it. And listen, we cannot do this on our own. We cannot do this without the grace of Jesus. It is only when everyone, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever background, whatever your story is, it is only when we realize that every one of us was in a ditch and we weren't half dead, we were whole dead. It is only when we realize that we needed someone not to walk by on the other side, but to come and to get dirty and the mess of our sin and our hatred and our self-righteousness and our lack of compassion and our bitterness and our anger. And he says, he, he, in that very moment, Jesus didn't just go from being a black man to becoming a white man. He went from becoming God to becoming the God man. He took on our humanity and said, I will cross over to your ditch. And I will bleed and die. I won't just get your blood on my hands, but my blood will pour out and it will be the very thing that can and will cleanse you. And I will bury your hatred and I will bury your division. I will put it in the ground and together we will experience resurrection life and we can build something better. Better than what the culture has to offer us. Better than the mutual kind of hatred and animosity that just rises. But no, no, no. Together, majority, minority cultures all together saying at the foot of Jesus, the, there's equality, mutual submission and love. And there we learn to love one another, treat each other with respect and dignity, flooded by the grace of Jesus, recovering God's shining dream. You see, Jesus' people, they display compassion 
and costly care, especially at the point of racial tension. Let's be those sorts of people. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we live in a world that is broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And I thank you that you've gone to great lengths to provide hope and healing. And we're not going to find it anywhere else. Not just in the repositioning of our power structures, not just in the fact of of rising up with anger, but we need healing. We need grace. We need a way forward. And Jesus, I thank you that your blood and your empty tomb provide a path. I pray that you'd mark out the people of God in a special way here in this body, across this city, and across the world that we together, with a vision of who you are, our crucified and resurrected King, that we would begin to revive and to live into your shining dream of a blessed and a unified family displaying your glory for all the world to see. May it be so. Amen.